Incoming transmission from an unknown source. It seems to be urgent. Patching them through. They're calling themselves the Holonet Marauders. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Holonet Marauders podcast. Today is a very special episode for us three. We're going to be talking about the sequel trilogy. We totally understand that there was just a huge episode of Mandalorian, but obviously we'll be talking about that next week as we do our Mando recaps uh, bi-weekly. So I'm joined here as always with Matt, or some as you know him, Matt the Cat, and Jamie. So let's paint a picture here. Think back to 2014, 2015, um, maybe even a little earlier, right when Disney acquired Lucasfilm. We all, everyone who was into Star Wars at that time, was a little bit worried, what's going to happen next? What's new? And then at the same time, there's a lot of fans who didn't even know they were going to be fans yet. And we owe all of that to the sequel trilogy and all of that to Disney buying Lucasfilm. I totally agree. I think Star Wars is as strong as it's ever been at this moment. I mean, it has a theme park in Disney World and Disneyland. And Mandalorian is thriving with huge success and without the sequel trilogy i don't believe or even disney acquiring lucasfilm it doesn't really it doesn't get to that point to where it is today oh no question you know back in what 2012 when lucasfilm was purchased by disney i hate to say but the star wars brand was a little bit on the dead side i don't want to say totally dead obviously there were a lot of passionate fans who were you know reading all the novels that were coming out uh new jedi order was still very popular and burgeoning at the time um, a lot of stuff was happening, but it was all relegated to the smallest passionate group of fans as opposed to the larger pop culture. Star Wars was kind of dead in the pop culture at the time, in the early 20-teens. I certainly remember, you know, I was a, an incredibly passionate fan of Star Wars growing up. And by the time I was in high school, I wasn't really paying much attention to Star Wars at the time. I mean, I was still like uh, the Phantom Menace re-release in theaters. I went to that opening day on my birthday. I was, you know, incredibly excited about that. But it was those kind of little moments that would pop up every now and then that I'd revisit my fandom and then I'd get home and kind of just forget. I hate to say it. You know, a lot of people read the books and the comics, but a lot of passionate fans who grew up with Star Wars watched the movies, maybe played the video games, but never really got into that side. And if it wasn't for the Disney purchase of Lucasfilm, we wouldn't have everything that we have now and more, you know, we have so much content to talk about and discuss. It's always coming. And I mean, I'm in the same boat as you and we got to high school, obviously we're the same age and there was, there was nothing to, to talk about except the past. Um, and now that Star Wars is always growing and growing, it's, you know, there's always new content. Like you said, it's, it's awesome. I don't know how you can't like that. We wouldn't have the Mandalorian. We wouldn't have all of the, you know, popular books and comics. But yeah, without the incredible success of The Force Awakens grossing the highest domestic box office gross of all time at the time, I mean, that was huge. Over $2 billion grossed, which was, you know, absolutely unheard of at the time. Only a few movies had done that before or come close to doing that before. And The Force Awakens just blew them out of the water. It was a cultural event, you know, in 2015. And that was really what kick-started everything that we know now in terms of how the Star Wars fandom is, which is a lot more lively, a lot more talkative, and a lot more, it's just a lot more. We are here in this new age of Star Wars, 
and we're just going to keep getting more Star Wars until uh, we die. And I can't, I couldn't be happier. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Happy. So the reason I mentioned 2015, 2014, even though that Matt just mentioned the Disney Lucasfilm acquisition was back in 2012, I mentioned 2014, 2015, because that's when we first got our first real sniffs at the sequel trilogy and the first movie coming out in 2015. Now, I actually did see the Phantom Menace uh, re-release in 2012. That was my senior year of high school, which is really curious that I saw it at all. Um, I went with one of my oldest friends who knows nothing about Star Wars. And the only reason that I remember going was I knew of Star Wars and I wanted to know more about it. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool that it's being re-released in theaters, right? And that was that. And I didn't really think twice about it. And so I was very mildly into star wars not like into it as into it as aj and matt were like they are lifelong fans like have been star wars fans since birth for me it's just kind of been something that's been on my radar my entire life if anything like the music has been like a big part of my life growing up but um the movies and the extra media were not a big part of my life until 2015 really because at that point, it was my senior year of college, so the fall of 2015 into 2016 and all. That was the year that pretty much everything changed for me for Star Wars. With the release of the sequel trilogy and just everything starting fresh, it was something that I could finally relate to. Something that was literally mainstream, but also nerdy enough to really dive into. It was the sequel trilogy and The Force Awakens alone that allowed me to dive deeper into different topics within Star Wars. It's something that I never thought that I'd be like really into, but it really came at a perfect time. And I honestly do not know how I passed senior year because The Force Awakens literally changed my life. And like, it's kind of crazy to say that and to like hear that as a statement. But think about what you were doing when you were 21 years old, or even if you're not even 21 years old, think about what you will do when you're at that point in your life. You're faced with like the biggest decisions in your life, and you're like, you know what? I'm gonna just go watch Star Wars, and we're just gonna deal with it another day. But <laughs> it's just like super silly to think of when I like put it that way. But it really did change like everything. Absolutely, the the sequel trilogy and Force Awakens specifically was such a huge escape for us. Um, you know, in our senior year, there's finals came upon us and whatnot, and they were they were a motivation for me. I, we talked about this before how I. I finished my um, my final. I stayed up all night and finished a huge paper and listened to the score. So it, it sounds crazy to you know the casual person, but Star Wars is important to us, guys. I mean, we're we're doing this podcast and this blog for a reason, and it doesn't matter how long you've been a fan. You know, we talk about it all the time. It doesn't matter if that was in seventy seven, ninety nine, or even twenty fifteen. We're all we're all in this together. We're all Star Wars fans. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, whenever whenever I see one of those posts, that's just like, oh, I've been a fan since birth. And I'm like, that's cool. I've been a fan for five years, but I, it still counts. And yeah, you're just as it will always still count. Known. Exactly. Just yeah. as much. If you like the thing, you're a fan of the thing. Exactly. Period. It's perfectly poetic. It rhymes. It's like poetry. <laughs> poetry rhymes. So in typical Holonet Marauders fashion, we're going to do a few top threes here. Although it'll be a little bit different than before. So since we are focusing on just the three movies from the sequel trilogy, we're picking our favorite scene or moment from each movie. So that means one scene or moment from The Force Awakens, one from The Last Jedi, and then one from The Rise of Skywalker. Obviously, there will be a few little honorable mentions in there as well, but we'll get to those later when we get there. 
Matt, do you want to lead off? Sure. So my favorite moment in The Force Awakens is, well, it's probably my top three favorite moments, but I decided I'm probably going to give you guys the other two because they probably match. And rather than just repeating the same one three times or twice, I'll go with something a little more obscure so I can actually talk about this aspect of The Force Awakens that I really like. And that is the dynamic between Rey and Kylo when she's captured on Starkiller Base. Now, the scene is actually incredibly pivotal to the entire trilogy, but it doesn't seem that way in The Force Awakens. It's one of those things that's definitely set up so that when you look back at it, you go, oh, wow, you know, that was way more important than we were giving it credit for at the time. Rey and Kylo, so Kylo captures Rey on Takodana. He brings her to Starkiller Base and tries to extract information from her about who she is, where she comes from, why is why was there an awakening? Because Snoke has already felt the Force awaken inside her. He has already felt that there's been a surge in the light side somewhere. Kylo thinks it's her. So he's probing her mind, trying to figure out what's going on. He senses that she thinks that Han Solo is a father figure. And that's when we get a little bit of insight into Kylo's motivations. Uh, you know, he says that he, he that she would be disappointed in Han Solo as a father figure as well. So we kind of get a little bit uh, inside Kylo's mind. We get a little bit of foreshadowing uh, for the, of course, the end result of that fatherhood. Um, but the most important thing about this is that it's probably what kicks off the dyad. And the dyad is one of my favorite elements of the sequel trilogy, the prophesized force dyad between Rey and Kylo, the force bringing two people together so that they are one being sharing the force between them. And this so you, is, what's up? So do you think that the dyad began when Kylo uh, started reading Ray's mind? Is that? I think there are two possible moments when the dyad started. It's either when Kylo lands on Jakku. And so right. either, you know, he's him and Ray being on the same planet might've awakened something. I mean, that's, obviously that's we know in my... the rise of but... Kylo Ren comic, that they've always been sort of kind of linked, but the strength of the bond doesn't start until the Force Awakens. And, you know, that him landing on Jakku could be the catalyst to that. But the way I see it is the moment on Starkiller Base, because I actually want to get into the novelization a little bit. And one thing that a lot of people, I don't want to say complain about, but discussed a lot about The Force Awakens at the time of its release, between 2015 and 2017, before The Last Jedi came out, was a part in the Force Awakens novelization that discussed Rey kind of, people were calling it Force Download, even though the author of the book uh, tried to steer people away from saying that. It was that she had kind of, when Kylo probed her mind, she almost picked up things from him, where before she didn't really know how to say mind trick, or she didn't have the wherewithal to be able to pull something towards her, her or do something else in the force, where after they kind of link in Starkiller Base, that's when she starts to pick up these kind of latent force abilities that she didn't have before. And she's starting to really figure out like, whoa, I can do this and I can do that. And that happens in the interrogation scene. And people were complaining about like, oh, that's just like a lazy thing. And you know, this was, but really it was a setup to the dyad. 
the dyad explains everything. Back in 2015, in the novelization, they were hinting at a connection between Ray and Kylo that would pay off four years later in, in 2019 in the last movie. You'd learn everything you needed to know about these two and you realize, you know, oh wow, just like Kylo shares the ability to force heal from Ray in The Rise of Skywalker, Ray shares the ability to mind trick or force pull from Kylo in The Force Awakens. It's like kind mm -hmm. of connecting both sides of the trilogy. So yeah, that's, that, that's kind of why that's a fantastic I, point. Yeah, I chose this scene just to kind of uh, talk about that little moment a little more. Something I didn't really realize until I started thinking more about the dyad. And I looked back and said, oh, wow, yeah. You know, that force download that people were talking about was really the first inklings of the dyad all the way back in 2015 in The Force Awakens. Yeah, because she pushes back immediately and she has no idea that she's really doing it. But it makes sense because it's almost like um, the switch was just pretty much flipped in her yeah. head at that point in which she's like, she didn't know what she was doing when she did it. And it, yeah, that's it. They're evenly <laughs> so matched that, that's between why. each other. My favorite moment in Force Awakens comes a little bit after Matt's in the final duel in the woods between Rey and Kylo. Obviously, it's our the first time they kind of faced off was in the interrogation room, as Matt just described. But they physically face off in the, the snowy forest. And I think the reveal... Ray grabbing the saber out of the snow when Kylo was about to grab it is so iconic. And I think there were so many little girls out there and just, you know, any female out there was screaming in their mind or in the theater that, you know, we now have a woman lead Jedi, which is totally awesome. I w in my mind, I was screaming. And the duel itself is probably one of my favorites in all of Star Wars. I know a lot of people say, like, oh, you know, they're kind of swinging baseball bats in, in the sequel trilogy, and it's not really like, you know, fancy fancy dueling as they do in the prequels. But I love the style of the, the sequel duels because I guess they haven't really been properly trained, especially Rey, and it just looks much more real, and every swing feels heavy, and I personally like that. So uh, one thing about, like, the fighting style as well, um, AJ, you've mentioned this before, um, way before we found out what Rey's true like lineage was um her fighting style in the first place so the way that she fights in the force awakens she does a lot of stabbing and that's something that as as someone who didn't really like theorize that much i always attributed it to the fact that she learned how to fight with a, a long staff and so she was working it that way and so she would be used to stabbing but then you pointed out that um papa palpatine over there he uh he <laughs> fights by stabbing with his lightsaber and that's just something interesting. It's like, were they did they put that in our, put that in there on purpose, or was it because of the staff training? It's something that's still kind of up in the air, but it's something that a lot of people will draw back to that there was that little bit of Palpatine fighting in there at the same time, or very early on in the Force Awakens in that fight. Yeah, that can be you know it's an accidental, on purpose thing they can point back to. I'm sure, and I said that back in 2015, sort of jokingly, but I think you're probably right about the the staff part of it. Yeah, because I remember at that point in time, I was like, oh, no, she's not a Palpatine. If anything, she's a Kenobi because she has a British accent, right? Right. Uh, yes, right. fighting styles and accents. Those are the are only two. Genetic. <laughs> yes, they are. But, you didn't uh, know that? I, no, I agree. I agree with AJ on this point that, you know, the, the forest battle was probably my favorite scene in The Force Awakens, too. But like I said, I didn't want to repeat. Uh, 
one thing that really sticks out in my mind that I just remember from the theater is the glow of the lightsabers. Uh, we really hadn't yeah. seen that before. This is like the first movie where they thought, hey, maybe we should put lights in the lightsabers. Um, <laughs> which blows my mind that it took us until 2015 to kind of think of that. But at the same time, it looks so good. The fight in the, in the snow with the reflections of the blue and the red bouncing off of the trees and the snow on the ground and the faces and just how and intense everything is. Yeah, is, you hear the crackle of the snowflakes hitting the blades. You hear, you know, the slicing of the trees, the sound design, the, I mean, it was so unique at the time that it just blew me out of the water. Attack of the Clones tried to do that whole, um, you know, lightsaber lighting thing in the scene where uh, Anakin and Dooku are fighting and Anakin cuts like the cord on the ground and the lights start to flicker and then you see like them waving their lightsabers around. But I think this really nailed what a lightsaber fight would really look like. The glow of the lightsabers. and. To your point about swinging baseball bats, that's actually why I love the sequel trilogy duels. They feel so like visceral and heavy. They feel threatening. Like you feel those, the, each and every swing, every hit and block is really intense. And, you know, people always come, you know, talk about the, the, the baseball bat style of fighting, but think about it. In the original trilogy, watch Luke. <laughs> he swings his lightsaber around like a baseball bat a lot and that's and that's who and, taught kylo so and i mean he, that's who taught kylo you know you can you can basically just see luke at the temple turning to his nephew and saying all right now we're gonna swing around like a baseball bat just swing it like a madman and kylo's like i can do that uh, I, was like, I don't a, know what a baseball bat is but we're gonna do know, that what's a baseball bat but no really i, I mean a, a nice touch that they had that fighting style because we're long removed from the prequels and the and the that fighting style and i mean in any sport I know it's, you know, dueling is a sport, I guess. In any sport, over a period of time, the style changes just because it's, it's like a game of telephone almost. So, I like that each trilogy has its own distinct duel feeling to them. I really do. Mm. It, make, it makes sense for all of them also because uh, prequel fighting, obviously, there's many people and many resources, and so they can really refine it and have very specific, um, highly stylized styles. But then by the original trilogy it's down to like three guys <laughs> and yeah. two of them are from the old times and then one of them is brand new who's never held one of these things before has pretty much no training luke yeah. um so that and so then by the time the sequels come around the only person who is trained who is trained kylo um was trained by the one who barely knew what he was doing Luke and Ray has no training except her staff training which she picked up herself so it makes sense that these fighting styles are like that and through force download, which Matt, Matt mentioned mm -hmm. so from Kylo, so it's all it's all the same. For my favorite scene in the Force Awakens, my favorite scene is uh, Ray's vision on Takodana. There's a lot going on at this scene, and I remember it was always the one that stood out to me the most upon seeing it. It was it's just so special in the first place that uh, seeing uh, the Skywalker lightsaber in the first place in that box just down below. I love the whole setup to it as well of BB-8 following Ray down the steps and he's just so concerned as to where she's going because it just shows that attachment to BB-8 and Ray in the first place. And then the the scene itself, we, we could like spend years trying to like break that down, but it's it's one of those things that like I absolutely love. It gives us the flashbacks of everyone who's used that lightsaber in the past. It's give it gives us 
possible flash, for flash forwards as well, which were never really fully explained, which I wish they did a little bit more with the Knights of Ren, but we'll get to that mm -hmm. another time. Um, but I remember from that moment forward, just like seeing like that little flash in there, it's just like, what on earth is this? And that, if you think about it too, can even be like a little bit of foreshadowing for Forstyad of the two of them just seeing each other and then getting disconnected immediately. Because it's always been like theorized. It's like, oh, is he looking directly at her when that happens in the Force Vision? And then just like the upright of um, I Ray telling Maz, I don't want this. I don't want anything to do with this. And she just runs away. <laughs> it's just like so typical for being just like overwhelmed with like a topic. And it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to remove my myself from the situation and just leave, which she tries to do again in Rise of Skywalker. But that's that's just a different like running theme. But that is one of my favorite scenes in Force Awakens. That was one of the first things, the first flashbacks the sequel trilogy did. And it seemed to do that in, it did it in every film. And before that, we'd only seen um, visions, I guess, with Anakin and his dreams. So he was kind of seeing the future. So it's kind of cool that, you know, that was revisited in this, and Ray was able to see the different scenes of the past with Kylo and Luke on um, Luke and Bespin. Yeah, I mean, it really shows us how intense Force, force visions are. I mean, we get, like, the, the image of Padme dying in childbirth in Revenge of the Sith, the kind of cloudy dream that Anakin is having in bed, but this is, like, a waking nightmare. I mean, this, she touches the lightsaber, and she's all of a sudden transported into this completely different world, and she's like skipping through all these different locations that are, you know, incredibly important in history. And she's experiencing them all uh, around her as opposed to just, you know, seeing stuff. It really shows how intense force visions are. It, it, you know, it sets up, say, in The Last Jedi when Luke reads Ben's mind while he's in bed. It really shows you just how intense that force vision that he could be seeing really is. You know, seeing all of his students slaughtered around him. <laughs> Uh, was would definitely definitely have some impact on you. Definitely set you off. Might I add to that scene with Ray touching the saber that introduced a force power. I don't remember the name. I don't know if it's force touch or what. But we see Cal Kestis using that same power in Jedi Fallen Order, which is pretty cool. Psychometry is that what it's called? Psycho psychometry, something like that. It, it essentially it's um when you touch an item that has some sort of a force connection to it um or some force users used it in the past you can pretty much learn the history based on touching that item so it's um cal has that um the kid who's in the book force collector has that and ray yep and also quinlan boss he uses that in the uh. one more thing about um that one scene though for ray's vision in the force awakens i had to mention it because again that was uh, my senior year of college. Um, the quote in that scene from Obi-Wan, uh, these are your first steps, I put that on my graduation cap. So it's it just goes right hand in hand of it really touched me at that point in time. And it, it meant everything. Yeah, hearing Obi-Wan and Yoda talking to Rey was pretty mind-boggling as well. Yeah. And wasn't Palpatine in there too? He is. We, there we is. That one. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It is very hard to hear. Right when she's transitioning, I think over to when she sees Luke's temple burning. If you really listen close, you'll actually hear a piece of the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise, I'm pretty sure. That's uh, Palpatine talking to Anakin about cheating death. Really quick, before we move on to The Last Jedi, rapid fire, what are your honorable mentions for The Force Awakens? I guess I'll go first. I had the 
Resistance showing up to Takodana to save the day. I thought that was sort of an epic moment. The X-Wings gliding over the, the lake, pond, whatever that is. And, you know, I think that's Paul... That's the hell even, of the pilot. Yeah, that's, yeah, I love that line. But, and the the shots in that, you, you we see the ground view of Poe flying around and destroying all the ties and stormtroopers on the ground. It was, it was super cool. These movies are really beautifully shot. All three of them have their own distinct, you know, cinema style to them. Uh, the cinematography in these films is very, it's, it's special. You know, people talk, about, uh, people talk about how blockbuster films with millions and millions and millions of dollars pumped into them, you know, it should be a given that they look good. But that's not the case. You see a lot of blockbuster movies nowadays give us very standard cinematography, very standard shots, very standard framing. Uh, but these movies, in my opinion, they really do stand out. They are something special as opposed to the more basic filming style of, say, like the DC movies or the Marvel movies. As much as I love those movies, they aren't exactly renowned for what they do uh, with their shot composition, I'll say. To transition into my honorable mention, I'd probably say that mine is the beginning with Jakku. I really love the setting of Jakku. I think Rey, who we know now, the daughter of the Emperor, uh, a kind of granddaughter, Jesus. I really love the idea of Rey, who we now know is the granddaughter of Palpatine, kind of this byproduct of a bygone age amongst the dead ruins of the Empire itself around her, you know, living in a hollowed out, rusted ATAT, scavenging out of these star destroyers and super star destroyers scattered in the, in the dunes. I mean, and I just love the thought of this, you know, she is a byproduct of the empire, the same as these are both abandoned, both kind of, you know, lost, forgotten, if you will. I really like that to kind of little poetry that, May or may not have been planned, but still what we got. And I still love that. It's such a unique, cool setting, too, to see all of these ruins from the previous trilogy. You know, it kind of gives a sense of continuity. That was like the first glimpse we had of Force Awakens with the, the Star Destroyer in the desert and whatnot. So Exactly. You know, we don't see any Venators or anything in um, the original trilogy for obvious reasons. I'm not going to act like it, that was a lack of continuity on their part. But, you know, it's nice <laughs> to see a transition of the, you know, old technology to the new. Perfect transition to my honorable mention. My honorable mention is uh, simply Chewie, we're home. That was one of the first scenes that we saw in the teaser trailer back in early 2015 was Han and Chewie just marching back on the Falcon. And even though we knew that that scene was coming, it was super magical to even see in the movie for the first time. And just seeing old Han Solo with Chewie was just perfect. And it just makes you think of Grumpy Harrison Ford in the first place. And it's just, it's just perfect. It's just one of those moments that it's, it just has to be a favorite one. Yeah, that put a, a smile on everyone's face for sure. I'm pretty sure there was cheers, honestly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we saw it in the teaser a million times and there were still cheers. So let's move on to The Last Jedi. We'll do the uh, same order as last time. So, Matt, go when you're ready. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. 
Um, I gotta. I have to make sure I don't talk for like an hour here because this is probably one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Wars. Not just in the sequel trilogy, not just in the movies, in all of Star Wars. I list it in my top three, and that is Luke's final stand on crate. There is so much to unpack in that scene. Um, from the reunion between Luke and Leia, which is just incredibly well done, to the theme, the spark, which plays as he's walking out onto the salt flat, which is just so epic. And honestly, it probably for me is the one of the most iconic pieces of music for the sequel trilogy. It's probably the one I think of when I think of the sequel trilogy is the spark. Um, Luke in The Last Jedi is another one of those topics that people cannot stop talking about. And I understand why. Um, for me, that's because it's incredibly interesting to dissect every little piece of Luke's characterization. Personally, I love the choices that were made in the movie. I know a lot of people don't, and I understand that. Um, I sympathize, I understand. Uh, but personally, I couldn't be happier with how it was handled. I thought Luke becoming disillusioned is part of the hero's journey for one thing. So many mythical legendary heroes become disillusioned on their path um, after the big, you know, after the big victories comes the point where the hero can no longer go home, as it were. They cannot, they can no longer, they're such a different person. Their experiences have changed them so much that they no longer can, can live amongst the people they saved. That is a big theme in um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. It's what Luke's journey from start to finish was based on. Um, Luke's disillusionment with the Jedi Order is, in my opinion, brilliant because it perfectly connects the prequels to the original. In the original trilogy, we have this idea of the Jedi that, in my opinion, kind of clashes with the prequel Jedi. Obi-Wan and Yoda talk about the Jedi as if they were this persecuted group that, you know, didn't do anything wrong. They were just living their life. And then all of a sudden the Empire came and started wiping them out. And Darth Vader helped along the way. You know, that's kind of the idea we get from Obi-Wan and Yoda. And they never really share what happened to the Jedi. And, you know, in fact, in the one of the most recent comics, the Star Wars line, um, that takes place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, Luke learns about Order 66 in between Empire and Jedi. He doesn't even know, you know, how it all went down. He learns it from some random, you know, ex-Jedi apprentice of somebody else from somebody else. I mean, it's this whole big thing. But there's this, dis this disconnect. Because when you watch the prequels, you learn, it's like, whoa, you know, the Jedi were complicit. They were you know, filled with hubris. They didn't want to admit that evil was rising right under their nose and they had no clue how to handle it. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite things in the prequels is the fact that Yoda knows it's happening. He knows everything that's happening. Even in Clone Wars season seven, Obi-Wan mentions, you know, when Ahsoka brings up Darth Sidious, he mentions, yeah, you know, that's Yoda. Um, he mentions, that's the Sith Lord that Yoda is pretty sure has orchestrated this entire thing under our noses and is, you know, bringing everything down on top of us and there's nothing we can do. We can't figure it out. And it's just like heartbreaking to watch that. But there's, a, there's such a disconnect between the prequel Jedi who are just, you know, not 
the heroes you thought they were in the in the original trilogy. That when we go to the Last Jedi and we see Luke in the Last Jedi, it's almost as if he watched the prequels with us, right? He watched the original trilogy. He he saw you know the Jedi as these huge you know monumental heroes of the past, and then he sits down and watches the prequels and says, "Oh wait a minute, you know these people." were filled with hubris. They, you know, they had this dogma that brought them down because Anakin couldn't, you know, couldn't agree with it. No, couldn't follow it. Uh, and they were too rigid and strict to allow him to kind of flourish in that setting. And so Luke projecting his own failure, realizing, wow, I let evil rise right under my nose. Um, and then having that all come down on top of him just as the prequel Jedi did, and then equating the two, connecting the two, saying, look, this happened before. This is going to keep happening. You know, I think that's brilliant. I think that is a perfect way to connect the prequels and the originals, and I think the sequels do that beautifully uh, in a lot of ways that I'll touch on later. But get, getting back to the actual scene I'm supposed to be talking about, sorry about that tangent. Right. Luke stepping out as an image, as a perfect image of himself, is like the entire thesis of the movie. The movie talks about the man, Luke Skywalker, and then talks about the image of Luke Skywalker. Ray was raised on the legendary figure of Luke Skywalker. You know, Ryan Johnson probably saw the line in The Force Awakens, Luke Skywalker, I thought he was a myth, and ran with it. I mean, he really ran with it. He talks about Luke as this you know, mythical character that people around the galaxy don't even know is real for crying out loud. He's like a legendary figure. And for him to step out, uh, to face down the entire First Order as the idealized image of himself, unkillable, uh, you know, the image of a Jedi Knight, not Hobo Luke with the straggly hair and the garbage bag, but the actual Jedi robes, hair, lightsaber, you know, the whole nine yards, for him to come down, for him to talk to Ben, tell him, I'm sorry for everything I did, teach him one last lesson about the conflict inside him, telling Leia that, you know, she's given up on her son, but he's not lost. Luke may not be the one to save him, but he's not gone. Luke then steps out and basically says the same thing to, to Ben. Strike me down in anger and I'll always be with you just like your father. Exactly. And and that sticks with Ben, right? I mean, Ben understands now he, he was blinded by anger. He allowed Luke to play him. And now he's kind of sitting there defeated and alone because he, you know, he's blinded by rage that maybe shouldn't be there. And I think Luke disappearing, saying, see you around, kid, kind of invoking Han. And then f becoming one with the Force, transitioning into the, into the final stage of the hero's journey is brilliant. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. That mile-long um, explanation of everything. I, I yeah, mean, sorry from, about that. No, it was great. Um, people will appreciate that. It's the, I always love the part where you're talking about where Luke... Um, sitting in the old ruins of the that cave or whatever with Rey and he's like, oh, the hubris of the Jedi and that's what that's what brought them down in the prequels. And people always talk about, oh, the sequels don't reference the prequels, but they do right there. I mean it's such a it's such a perfect way to do it too. I, I every time I watch that film, I Last Jedi I always I fall in love with that line. And 
and to go back to the scene you're talking about, I've always thought the most Jedi thing you can do is sacrifice yourself to save others. We see Luke do it there. We see Obi-Wan do it with Luke to, so that, that crew can get away. The Resistance gets away in this scene, and Kanan does it famously, which is heartbreaking, right. and Rebels for that crew to get away. That, and I'm like, don't mention Kanan. Don't mention Kanan. Then you mention you Kanan. Kanan. They're all the same thing, pretty much. And I mean, yeah. Rise of Skywalker, Ben sort of does it too. He sacrifices himself. So Ray and the Resistance fight another day. And I mean, they beat the Final Order, but it's all kind of the same thing. All the greats do it. And I agree. Yeah. I, it's a great scene to pick. I, I agree with you. You know, it's, a, it's unfortunate. The heroes, again, going back to Joseph Campbell, the heroes, whenever they start on their journey, they're making a sacrifice. They don't get to live the normal life. They don't get to die of old age. They don't get to have the perfectly sweet, happily ever after ending. And, you know, I understand that that is hard to accept for a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to accept for me. I was very afraid of Luke Skywalker's death in The Last Jedi going into the movie. Uh, I was afraid of it when they announced the sequel trilogy in general. In Legends, they never actually touch on Luke Skywalker's death. I mean, we know he dies because we, in the Star Wars Legacy comics, his Force Ghost appears. So we know he died at some point, but we never actually touch upon when Luke Skywalker died, sometime in his old age. But again, that having him die at the hands of his traitorous nephew literally mirrors King Arthur perfectly who, of course, is the entire basis of Luke Skywalker's characterization in the original trilogy. Farm boy, given a sword, sent off on a magical quest by creepy hermit wizard, is the exact <laughs> same you know, setup. It's like the most classic fairy tale story you could ever told, you could ever tell. And having Luke go out pretty much in the same fashion as King Arthur with Mordred, um, I think, again, is perfectly brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree. So my favorite moment in The Last Jedi is what I think is probably the most iconic scene in all of the sequels, and that's Snoke's throne room. Um, when, you know, Kylo is in front of Rey and Snoke is like, oh, strike her down or whatever he says. And Kylo obviously turns the Skywalker saber around and cuts Snoke in half, pulls it out to Rey, and then they fight the Praetorian guards. So... I think just the look of that scene alone, I, I can't go into these deep meanings that Matt just went into. Um, he did a great job there. But just the look of the, of the scene with the red background, the red guards, and a red saber and a blue saber teaming up together, it, the, it was beautifully shot. The choreograph was great. And the two of them just dueling the Praetorian guards is just magical in my mind. And that was probably the moment I was most excited seeing any of these films in the theater. That was, that was the big shock of the whole trilogy, I think, the, between the Pal Palpatine reveal and all the other stuff. I think that was the moment, killing Snoke. I was like, wow, they did it. And then pulling the saber out and Rey and Kylo slash Ben teaming up together. There was obviously fanfics about it after Force Awakens and all that stuff and there's the Raylo stuff, but it actually happened. And seeing it happen was like, wow, they're, they're doing this. <laughs> I think in that moment also, we we really get our first glimpse of this is Han Solo's son because Kylo Ren goes into that throne room fully at, with the intention of doing what Snoke is telling him to do. And then seeing what he does to Rey, he's like, 
no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to change the plan right now, right here, and we're just going to put it on its head. And that is just 100% something that Han Solo's son would do. And it just makes sense because we get the first real glimpse of this is Ben Solo, and it was just so exciting to see that because we we know that Ben Solo is a character, obviously, from the beginning of the Force Awakens, but we really don't know anything about him that much until the last jedi well we see like the flashback versions of him but we don't see him like in action really until the throne room scene and it's like this is absolutely insane and just seeing like the two of them fight in sync it's the force is perfectly balanced at that moment in time it's beautiful yeah you know it's funny that you mention him being han solo's son because people you know talk about how snoke's death kind of killed something that was set up in the force awakens but in my opinion snoke's death was something that was set up in The Force Awakens. Han Solo's last advice to his son before his death is that Snoke is using, for your, using you for your power. You, you know this. He's reaching out to his son. He's saying, look, you know, Snoke is, is not who you think he is. He's never going to accept you. Uh, he's never going to accept the conflict in your heart. Um, and, you know, and then he reaches out and tells him to come with him. Obviously, Kylo rejects that. But... I think he uses his father's advice when he finally realizes, wow, Snoke, you know, my dad was right. Snoke, uh, Snoke is using me for my power and I just, I should take it for myself. Why, why should I let him take it? I think a big part of it as well is that Kylo and Ben, whichever you want to refer to him as, he thinks of his father when he sees Rey because Han really imprints it on Rey in The Force Awakens and she, and he was a big part of her life of the whole Force Awakening for her. And Han was just rolling with it, and he wanted his son to come home. And he he knows that it's his fault, and so in that moment as well, it's really, it makes him think about what his father said, and this was someone that she trusted as well. So he should really think further on it and do the right thing in that sense. I've never really thought of it that way, but that's a, that's a great point. We see the similarities between, between Rey and Han in The Force Awakens, and he did, maybe he does see a bit of Han in Rey. Yeah, I like that. For my favorite scene in The Last Jedi, this is something that takes place on the island of Octo. It is not really involving Rey. It is Force Ghost Yoda. It, this was something that was so incredibly magical to see on screen and something pretty unexpected as well. And it was just so entertaining to see Yoda and Luke interacting with each other. And it was... <sighs> Ah, it's just so perfect to see like Yoda um, on screen as as puppet Yoda, also not whatever the like, crazy like CGI yeah, Yoda. It was just wonderful to see Force Ghost Yoda and him interacting and sitting on like the logs and whatnot, looking at Luke and being like, "No, nah, you're being dumb." And Luke's just like the text, and Yoda's just like, Psh. and so it like makes sense that like Luke is still tripping over like his mistakes and like still he's not perfect, and Yoda is there to like hammer that home and be like, "Look." You're not perfect, so let's just do our thing. And, you know, the Force will figure it out. Yeah, that was another pure surprise moment for me in the theater. But pan- the camera, I, I can see it in my mind. The camera panning back and starting to see the blue in the corner. And I was like, it's Yoda. That was just, oh, it was great. The, the banter between him and Luke was spot on from where they left off on Dagobah. So I'd love Absolutely. to see that. And going back to what I said, my, going back to my rant earlier, um, to have Yoda, the former head of the Jedi who fell in the prequels, talking to Luke about 
Luke's Academy falling uh, is, again, perfect poetry and a perfect linking between the two eras. You know, having the Grand Master of the Jedi talk to the previous Grand Master of the Jedi, both of which, you know, made mistakes along the way, learned from their failures, grew from their failures, passed on what they had learned to their, you know, apprentice to the next generation of Jedi. It was just perfect. It was the perfect setup. Now should we do honorable mentions? <laughs> Let's grab yes. our honorable mentions for The Last Jedi. So for my honorable mention, I had, it's not really a scene, but it's kind of just, I guess, a few scenes. The, the beginning of the Force Skype, as I like to call it, the Force connection between Kylo and Rey, which we got to see a continuation of in The Rise of Skywalker. But that was just such a cool way to develop those characters because they're not seeing each other. And that was really the only way you could do it. Um, that I can think of. And Ryan did a great job uh, implementing that into the movie. Definitely. So my favorite, my honorable mention would, I, and this is going to surprise some, I bet, but I would probably say Canto Bite. Uh, or at least no surprise the- surprise to either of us. No surprise. <laughs> the introduction to Canto Bite. First of all, I am a big sucker for aliens. Uh, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can watch a video on the sequel Aliens, more to come. Um, little plug, little plug in there. Uh, but the Canto Bite, I love the designs of the aliens. I love aliens and tuxedos. Uh, I think that's, I don't know why I love aliens and tuxedos, but I do. But it's I think, just so strange. And it's just like, it you is, know right? what? Why not? Yeah, no, it, it, seriously. And my favorite thing about Canto Bite is that, you know, usually when we see these quote unquote cantina scenes, J.J. Abrams calls them cantina scenes. It's the, it's the big it's like the Jabba Pal Jabba's Palace scenes where you see a whole host of background aliens that have, you know, a million books about them in, in the EU and stuff. But, you know, you see these designs that these concept artists and creators just sat by back and said, well, what if we do this? What if we do this? Um, but seeing that grouping of what the galaxy has to offer, but on the flip side, instead of Jabba's Palace, instead of like the poor scum of the galaxy, we now see the rich scum of the galaxy. We see a duology between, you know, these two groups, both criminal, both evil, but for different reasons. And I really love the idea that now we're kind of exploring the other side of the galaxy. We kind of got that in Revenge of the Sith a little bit. We see like some of the high high end nightlife of Coruscant, uh, and of course, Coruscant itself is one big analogy for that the the rich and powerful living on top literally of the yeah. poor people who live in the dark underneath them but seeing all these war profiteer aliens in tuxedos gambling while the galaxy is a war i thought was just a again again another perfect continuation of the themes set up in the prequels when we had all of these different corporations funding the confederacy of independent systems now we have you know we see more war profiteers for my honorable mention of the favorite moments in the last jedi uh two little things first little thing porgs the gift of porgs and Ooh. everything about porgs um yes. love them absolutely love them and then my other honorable mention just have to note is um the noise that the ship makes when holdo makes holdo makes the jump to light speed The noise alone is one of my favorite noises in Star Wars. It's one of my favorite noises in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a fair statement. Yeah, it's definitely one of those noises where, uh, just iconic. 
let's move on to the Rise of Skywalker. So we're going to go over our favorite scenes of that. Matt, go ahead. Me? Oh. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> All right. So my favorite scene in The Rise of Skywalker is definitely the battle on the Death Star 2. Um, I really love this scene for a number of reasons, but I think my favorite is the mirroring of Anakin and Kylo. One of my favorite things in the sequel trilogy in general is the mirroring between Kylo Ren and Anakin slash Darth Vader. And it, I'll get to that later on. I have a lot to say about that, but <laughs> to, to, keep things, today. <laughs> to keep things relatively brief, um, Kylo Ren and Anakin Skywalker, there, there are direct parallels between these two characters that I really love. Obviously, the scar, the hair, the attitude. The battle on the Death Star 2, Kef Burr versus the battle on Mustafar, the battle of heroes. Uh, they are a direct mirror of each other. You have Anakin starting the battle as Anakin, battling in this very volatile, um, fiery, hellish location, uh, and ending his battle scarred and burnt by the fire as Darth Vader. And the parallels between fire and water, mythically speaking, fire is destruction, water is healing. So we have Anakin destroyed by fire in episode three. And when we move on to Kylo Ren, who starts the battle as Kylo Ren against Rey and transitions in the healing waters of Kef Burr to Ben Solo again, right? He's healed in the waters during the battle. Um, it is a direct, it's a direct mirror of Anakin's fall. It's Kylo Ren to Ben, Ben's rise. Um, and, you know, those parallels have to be purposeful. They have to be, that is, you know, too direct to be anything else. That's why The Rise of Skywalker directly parallels Revenge of the Sith in so many ways. And the battle on Kef Burr is like the perfect example of that. My favorite scene in The Rise of Skywalker is right after Matt's favorite scene, and that's when Ben is healed, Ray and everyone is gone, and Ben's looking out at the ocean, and all of a sudden you hear, hey, kid. And he turns around, and it's Han, and when the camera panned over to him in that theater, man, there was, I don't tear up for much, I really don't tear up for much, but this scene, this scene got me, because those are literally my two favorite Star Wars characters of all time, and father and son, they're having a a moment which is a complete circle from The Force Awakens from that um, little catwalk when Han got stabbed and fell off and died. And it's a complete mirror of that scene, pretty much line for line, which was an odd choice, but I think a perfect choice. And it ends with Ben becoming Ben, Kylo Ren's dead, my son's alive, and he turns around, hucks the saber into the ocean. And it's still, it's really sad because when Ben turns back around, he has a bit of joy on his face. And then he's like, oh crap, my dad's dead. This wasn't, this was just a memory. And it's, it's both sad and hopeful at the same time. And I just, I love that. I think it's such an iconic scene and it's probably one of my favorite Star Wars scenes in general. Seeing Han, even though it is in his memory or in his head, um, it reignites his hope because he talks about uh, his mom, uh, what she stood for and whatnot. And it's, it it just reignites the hope, and that is everything that Han and Leia always stood for was hope for the future. And Ben was supposed to be the hope for the future. And so in that moment, since he was Ben again, he was like, well, 
this is it. And when he hucks the lightsaber and turns around, it's just the biggest like like swelling sense of being proud. And he's like, look, I did it. I did it. And then Han's not there. And he's like, okay. Okay, well, time to go to work. Yeah, and the, and the novelization actually adds just a little bit more to that scene when it talks about how Ben is envisioning his future in terms of what he has to do, and he realizes in that moment that he's going to die. But he still goes to Exegol. He still pushes forward because that's exactly what he needs to do. It's what he needs to do to make everything right again. Because even though he was able to do, even though he was able to make things right for himself internally, obviously he can't bring his father back. Obviously he can't bring his mother back, but he can still save Ray, who he knows you know, again is going to die. Yeah. And another little touch that I really like is when Han reaches out and touches Ben's face. Obviously he does that in The Force Awakens too, but when he touches Ben's face in this, you'll notice that it is where the scar used to be, but is no longer there. Um, because when yeah. Ray heals his wound, um, she also heals his scar. That entire sequence is just a wild ride. Like the first yeah. time we saw that in theaters, um, I honestly didn't notice it. And then I noticed it when Han is touching his face that the scar was gone. And so in in our second viewing, that was like what I was like staring at the entire time when Ray Force heals him was that the scar just disappears. And I'm like sitting there like <laughs> nudging AJ. And I'm like, did you see it? Did you see it? It's gone. It's gone. Did you see it? And he's like, yeah, I, I saw it. But like this entirely scene with Han and Ben at this point, uh, you guys like knew the leaks and whatnot, like slightly. And so like you knew like Han was going to be in it. And like <laughs> I made it a point to like try to not look at anything. But AJ was like, no, you, you need to know that Han is <laughs> going to appear because he knew that like I would just start like bawling. And I did. So like my first viewing, just like hearing, hey, good. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm like, I like. I don't even know if I saw the scene because there were so many tears. Like that entire like back like bit of the movie of like Leia's the sacrifice and then Han showing up and then it just continues and then you know the rest. But rough, very rough the first time, but perfect at the same time. All three of us were deeply invested in Ben Solo's story, and he was probably I'm mean, I'm assuming here, but he was probably our favorite sequel character, right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So for me, uh, to segue in, like we just mentioned, uh, my top moment was Who Are You, Ray Skywalker. That is my favorite movement in Tross. Because, well, many things. Many things, many things. She, by blood, was a Palpatine. However, this goes back to Star Wars is about finding your own family, and your blood family isn't necessarily the ones that you call your family. And so by picking the name Skywalker, it it means the world because they are the ones who had the biggest impact on her life. And it's not like she's doing it for like fame or doing it just because. No, she's doing it because Luke and Leia had that impact on her life. And by choosing her family, that's she's choosing her own path. Absolutely. Oh man, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> um Oof, I have a lot written down about this. But yes, uh, Ray Skywalker is an incredibly important part of the sequel trilogy. It's kind of like, there's two payoffs in, in The Rise of Skywalker. One is a payoff to the entire saga as a whole, and one is a payoff to the sequel trilogy. And the one that's a payoff to the sequel trilogy, obviously, is Ray Skywalker. Um, 
but again, this goes back to the Rise of Skywalker parallels to Revenge of the Sith, where the sequel trilogy is almost an inverse of the prequel trilogy. We have a Palpatine influenced by Skywalkers and given a new identity at the end of the entire journey. Um, whereas in the prequels, it is a Skywalker influenced by a Palpatine and stripped of his identity, given a new name, Vader, whereas Rey is given and takes the name Skywalker. So it's almost like a healing of that old wound, that old Anakin wound where his identity was stripped as a Skywalker. Rey gains her identity as a Skywalker. The The biggest thing about Rey Skywalker is from the very beginning of the sequel trilogy is she's presented as no one because she chose to be no one. And so then it shows how even though she grew to find out what her true lineage was, she may have known the entire time, but she always opted to be no one. Rey always chose who she wanted to be. And then at the end, she chose who she wanted to be. So now we'll do our honorable mentions for Rise of Skywalker. I'll lead it off. And I went with the the opening scene. It's pretty much, I call it a cold open for this because we get straight from the, the crawl, we get Kylo on Mustafar. And it's very fast paced. So they throw you right into the action, just like they do in Revenge of the Sith. So immediately you're glued to the screen. What's going on? Kylo is going through Mustafar, gets the Wayfinder. And the, the music, the transition into the Wayfinder and then to Kylo going through the Unknown Regions is, like, perfect. It looks so cool. I love that from day one. And then you have the cool, the cool little score going there by John Williams, which is probably my favorite score in, in the movie. And he gets to Exegol with the lightning flashing, and it's, it's spooky. It's scary. It's, it's one of the scariest um, scenes in Star Wars, in my opinion, when he gets in the, the old ancient ruins and Palpatine's in there. Uh, zombie palps yeah and just the the conversation between kylo and palpatine it may be it may be cheesy but it's awesome and it's like matt said earlier it's a direct um parallel with revenge of the sith from when anakin was talking with palpatine that scene is a i'll give it a 9 out of 10 that whole from mustafar to there it could be a 10 out of 10 if it had the iowa bog, but that's a story Ooh. for another day oh don't even start on that oh <laughs> Hey everyone, Jamie here. Quick little segment about the next bit that you're going to hear. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty when uh, we were recording, and so I seem to have misplaced a little piece of Matt's audio. It is his uh, honorable mention for The Rise of Skywalker, so I just had to reach out to him to figure out what exactly it was because he explained it at great length and well, the audio just kind of drops in at a random place. So, for Matt, his honorable mention for The Rise of Skywalker was Rey's Resurrection. Now, the beginning piece he explains was Ben Solo did fulfill Anakin Skywalker's uh, premeditated legacy of saving the ones that you love. And, well, I only have about half of Matt's description here, and I'm sure that he'll want to talk about it at another date, but here's what I have so far. So, just remember, this is Matt's honorable mention coming up next, which is Ray's resurrection. And I think that, again, ties back into the prequel trilogy brilliantly. I think Anakin's fall to the dark side is the catalyst for the entire saga. And to have that catalyst pay off in the ninth film, the final film, to have Ben Solo 
resurrect someone from the dead itself is so monumental. Um, especially when you think about the fact that these two people are the grandchildren of the two people who were sitting in the opera house talking about cheating death 50 years ago, right? Five decades ago, again, Palpatine turns to Anakin and tells him that the power to save the ones you love from death is a power that the Jedi cannot achieve. And 50 years later, their grandchildren find that power through the light side of the force. It is a Jedi power. It is a power the Jedi could achieve. Anakin was wrong, but yeah, in, J- the, in the best way. J.J. Abrams said that the opera scene in uh, Revenge of the Sith is his favorite scene in, in, the, in the prequels, I think. So oh, it makes sense he brought it full circle with this. Exactly. I think that's the perfect payoff. I think that is an absolutely brilliant payoff. And I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to say any more. My, uh, my honorable mention is not as uh, poetic as you guys. This is more of a personal uh, fulfillment thing of this. Um, seeing the Knights of Ren doing hey. something yeah. um, was uh, my honorable mention in the Rise of Skywalker. Ever since in The Force Awakens with the Ray's vision, the Knights of Ren are just in a little blip. I have been obsessed with knowing everything about the Knights of Ren. And not seeing them in The Last Jedi really put me off, but I got over it. And then Rise of Skywalker happened, and, well, we have scenes of them just standing around, menacingly. All right. Well, I mean, like, I wish that they, like, did more, but, like, I love that they were in it, and then the fight at the end was, like, it was good enough. But, like, I still... I still wish for um, future like media with the Knights, either a continuation of the Rise of Kylo Ren comics or possibly a miniseries of some sort. That's just something I wish for and like I will hold on to for forever. Um, I just love seeing the Knights of Ren, and it's something that I wish that they got to say more or got to see more of. So I think I'm going to call it for today. As much as Matt wants to continue on talking about everything in the sequel trilogy, as much as all of us want to continue talking about the sequel trilogy, Matt keeps going on about like a list that's like the size of the entire galaxy. But we, we could be talking for days at this point. So we're going to wrap it up here. And we want to thank everyone for listening to our episode today. And we want to also just thank everyone for the continued support of the Holland Up Marauders podcast. We hope you guys join us for the next episode soon.